Shall I publicly shame you on air? Yeah. Hello go for and it. welcome to the Plants and Pivets podcast, where we're back after a week of break to talk about plants. Yeah. Um, we weren't we weren't here last week because um, Tegan messaged Joram saying podcast question mark podcast question mark question mark question mark. And got no response because Yaram had left the world behind and gone <laughs> gone bush, basically. I've gone feral. I, I went back into the the, the, the woods and mm-hmm. had nature reclaim me. No, I just, um, we spontaneously decided to go with friends in our built-out camper vans into Brandenburg, the area around Berlin. And as it turns out, it's mostly offline. It was, <laughs> it was almost like... It was almost refreshing that I couldn't check my phone for a long for a long time. But I literally, like, I could not message you. I sent you the message, and um, I could tell that like four hours later, it was still not sent. <laughs> it was still mm-hmm. hanging in the nowhere of Brandenburg, like non-internet. The the mean thing is like the the phone shows you sometimes a couple of bars, sometimes it tells you you have Edge or whatever. But nothing ever comes through. You can't look up any information. You can't send any information. You are completely offline. I think you have to like thrust the phone into the earth. Like it's one of these like <laughs> either wave it really high in the air or like thrust it into the earth to like connect yeah. somehow. Yeah. But, Doesn't Germans still use copper cables? So like they're probably underground thrust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I should have hooked it up to a kite and had it fly for a bit to pick up a signal. It's um, a good way to get electrocuted. Yeah. But yeah, it was fun. It was fun to to go a little bit around. It was quite cold. Like we had a um, a break in uh, of very cold early spring weather now at the end of May. Um, but it was still it was still fun to go out with the kids. They have a kid, and we have kids, and then it was good. I'm st- I still feel sorry for just like not being here for the show, but that's that's life. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Oops. I mean, it's very weird now we are living life as far as moving around the world again, which is, I mean, it's a very nice thing. I mean, I feel, I like, I, I'm very, very tired from doing things. I, you know, like I had a couple of weeks ago, I had a conference. And then I immediately went traveling after the conference and I moved to like, I went to Paris and then I went to Berlin and then I went to Glasgow, like one, like one after the other, like A to B to C, back to London again eventually. And I, I just, after that, I was so drained and so behind with everything as well, mm-hmm. like from a work point of view. But it's really nice being drained because things are happening in the world as opposed to being drained just for like emotional, <laughs> mental <laughs> reasons. Um, yeah. I, I'm really enjoying it. I mean, you can hear I'm sick again, but that's boring. Um, this is the cost of going out. I mean, yeah. Yeah. It's good. And uh, you also have some some big news about your <laughs> I mean, it's your only, livelihood. It's, it's only big for me, but it was the first time ever in my life that I went and really quit a job because I didn't like it. And okay. now I did that and it felt good. Um, I thought I could quit it within a month notice. I thought this was my, like I had only a month left, but then because of German contracts and labor protection, I have three months left. So I have the, the kind of awkward thing of where I was like, okay, I just take the remaining holidays that I, that I have, and then I'm out, goodbye. I'm not coming to work even after my parental leave now. That's come soon to be over. But now I'm actually coming back for a little bit of work. They were work. like, no, actually, <laughs> actually, sir, it doesn't work. It's probably better for handover and stuff like that, right? I mean, I, I did all my handover before I went on my parental leave, so... It's fine. It's it's still fine, and I like I like some of the colleagues. I will actually miss not working with them. So it's sort of nice to have some 
transition period where I can still spend some time with these colleagues and and have a little chat. But it's also fine to do it all on my own terms of saying like, look, I'm out, I'm going, I I will do something else, even though that will be a little bit later than I expected, but it's still fine. Um, and I just say like, I don't know, it's an experience to be had to go and quit a job that you're not really um, 100% happy with and then see yeah. what's happening next. Uh, I don't really know what I, I will be doing next, but um, I hope it will be better. It will probably be good. I, I think I've also never really done, I've never really quit a job. I've never just... Yeah, usually yeah. in science, your contract runs out and then yeah. you have to do something else because your contra contract is over. But um, you you don't... It's very rare that you go to your boss and say, I quit. And here are the reasons why I quit. My which job. I, which I could also like. I had. Did you give the reasons? I gave the reasons, and I was, and yeah, that that also felt good because I also I I didn't try to be like mean or like bad about it, but I also wanted to be honest and be like, look, these are the reasons why I don't feel happy here anymore. If you want, you can learn from it. If you don't want to, it's it's up to you. But at least I I put it out there, and it was good. Oh, it was a good I mean, experience. it's maybe also a good sign that you left before you got to the stage. Like, you could say that in a constructive way. You didn't, like, wait until it got to the point where you, like, could no longer constructively say. Yeah. Where I just wanted to punch it. someone. Burn! <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Shall we talk about plant science? Yeah, let's talk about plant science. favorite plant today it's my turn to talk about <laughs> my favorite plant and uh i very um sort of lazily looked around my my kitchen and was like what could i talk about and um my my wife is growing a shizo plant and i was like oh maybe that's interesting and it turns out i actually found it quite interesting <laughs> about the shizo plant so shizo or perilla frutescens varianta crisper or varians crisper i don't know what the var stands for um but sort of a, a, an under a variation of the a cultivation fruit. type. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Thank you. Good that you are the expert. <laughs> now a little plant podcast. I've often seen the var and never really thought about what it means. But it's a um, cultivar of Perilla frutescens, um, and this is also called by its, uh, uh, also known by its Japanese name Shizo. Um, as a herb, it's in the family uh, of the of mint, Lamiaceae, Lamiace. and um, this plant originally was native to regions in China and India, um, and but now you can sort of find it worldwide. You can uh, it's it's pretty much grown everywhere. It, it, it is even sometimes an invasive weed. Um, I only found it in Wikipedia. It says like it can be an invasive weed, but I that it's very region specific usually, and I don't know in what region. Mm they refer to but i i could imagine it's for example the united kingdom because it was introduced to the united kingdom in the 19th century and maybe you can take a guess at how they probably i mean i don't have solid sources but how most likely they would get it to the united kingdom in the 19th century if they couldn't bring seeds because the seeds would rot quickly in a wardian <laughs> case <laughs> Which is um, a callback to a different podcast we're doing, but I think we've also mentioned wadding cases on the podcast here. It's like a small greenhouse that 
What's his name? Somebody Ward? We still can't remember his first uh, name. Nathaniel Ward, I think. I want to say Rufus. Um, Nathaniel <laughs> Rufus Ward developed as a way of carrying plants on ships um, to keep yeah. them from basically drying out and getting murdered by sea spray. Yeah. Uh, that was a major um, that, invention. You just made that up, though, for this plant. This actually doesn't have a connection to this plant. I mean, we don't know. Like, It was introduced to the United Kingdom in the 19th century at a time when a lot of plants were moved around in Wardian cases. You can't mm-hmm. really transport the seeds because they um, qu- they don't have such a long shelf life. And they were introduced by John Gould Veitch, or Veitch um, which was one of the first Victorian plant hunters that reached Japan and took lots of plants from them and made a fortune with them back in the United Kingdom. Uh, and this guy came up in the book, the Wardian case that we just read as well. Okay. So, um, so you've got good, you've got good information. It's not just like I heard a rumor that a duck curried it in its bill because it no. found the leaf very attractive. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I like I don't have um, a written statement that says Shiza was transported in a Wardian case, but from all of the and uh, like uh, indi- uh, indications, I would think so. That's the most likely. Okay, so just like to to go back a few steps, sorry, you've got some history here, but where might we have seen this in our life, like this plant? Um, yeah, <laughs> that that would come up next in the in the uses of it. Um, you might know this as like the the little plastic decoration that you get when you order sushi somewhere. Um, this, it's usually grass. Yeah, it's usually- it's. it's, it's grass but it used to often be shizo leaves that you would use as the dividers there there was a big craze in i think i read in the 70s to 1980s um where they figured out how to um first of all uh have refrigeration for sushi or um, sashimi so that you can transport it and then also how to grow shizo in large quantities and then they could combined it to and there was actually um, a big impact on the availability of shizu on the Japanese market and today we mostly know it as decoration for sushi Uh, on fancier places you get a shizu leaf on there but you can sometimes also get it on like a Japanese curry and some other dishes there's like it's it's like fairly often used in Japanese cooking Um, but I also read that you can use it like basil and now that we have growing it on our windowsill uh, I think this weekend I will try and make a pizza margarita and instead of basil I will use shizo on there and see if that works. Um, but it doesn't taste basil no. right? I mean, the flavor is not... No, it has a very distinct flavor and the distinct flavor comes from a compound called perylaldehyde and... Um, Another fun fact on this compound that you find not only in shizo, but I think the like higher amounts you find in shizo than compared to other f- um, plants in the perilla family is that you can chemically modify peril aldehyde and then create a, um, a sweetener. You create a compound that is 2,000 times sweeter than regular sugar, regular sucrose. However, it also has a kind of bitter, uh, bitter aftertaste, so it's not really used in, in food for us. Um, but I found uh, a source that says that it's used as a sweetener for tobacco in Japan. So I don't really know why you want to sweeten your tobacco. But apparently the bitterness doesn't really hurt when you are sweetening tobacco, which I, is also kind of bitter and disgusting. Um, but yeah, you can sweeten uh, tobacco with a compound that you can extract from shizu. Yeah, and it's like, I didn't actually say what the plant looks like. To me, it looks like a uh, stinging nettle. Yeah. It has these serrated um, pointy leaves. And apart from that, it grows rather unremarkably. Unre- um, it makes lots of these leaves that can get quite big. Like approximately, like some of them are almost the size of my hand. Not exactly, a little bit smaller, but like 
can imagine, like rather big leaves. Um, and I like chopped some of them up already for and for for cooking, and they are really delicious. Like I can recommend getting your hands on some seeds and growing them. Uh, just maybe don't grow them in your garden, as they can be invasive. I think the cool things is there's also like the red varieties. So there's sort of uh, some some different types forms and there's like a red one and a kind of more cur like curlier one like a ruffled one it's called um and then one which has green on one side and red on the other side so that yeah. sounds like i mean it's it's pretty right that it's, it's decorative and edible which is always a yeah. nice addition yeah exactly cool. i think the green one is the one that we most commonly know from the sushi boxes but um mm -hmm. there are other pretty pretty ones there as well yeah it says that also um, this umeboshi, so the pickled plums, they use the the red one to give that colouring mm -hmm. in the in the plums. It's actually not. Yeah, yeah cool. Really, really interesting, Yaram. Yeah, it was nice all one. just from like looking <laughs> around. And not, not What's knowing. in my kitchen? <laughs> yeah. Next week it's oregano. <laughs> Diversity in the class. Science. Um, so today I am going to be introducing a scientist slash designer. Um, primarily she is a designer. Um, she's just, I think, completed her master's now um, at the Parsons School of Design in New York. Um, but she is relevant for us because she does this really cool sort of biochemical molecular biology slash plant-based designing stuff, which I just think is really insanely interesting. So her name is Aradita Paras. Rampuria. Um, but she goes by Aradita Para, so like on her website it's just Para the shortened last name. Um, and just to give a very brief background about herself, as I said, she's got this sort of design focused, um, but she's really interested in this sort of sustainable design and the use of natural materials um, to do sort of artsy things and um, a lot of fabric based stuff, dye based stuff. So if you look at her website, um, she has two different major projects and one of them is called a colorful alternative. And this is basically using bacteria to develop different colors um, and then either painting with these sort of extracts of bacteria or sort of using them to dye different materials um, and going on with that. And then the second one, which I think is even more relevant to us as plant scientists, is um, using kelp as a sort mm. of material. So she's doing this, um, you might have you might have actually be familiar with it. So it's kind of this molecular gastronomy thing. So it's it's using kelp and kelp has this alginate in it. So it's got this kind of ability um, to to stiffen, like this is like mm -hmm. agar agar and stuff like this. Um, so she's basically developing a natural kelp-based beads as one thing. So these sort of beads can then be used um, sort of visually, uh, like linked interlinked with fabrics or sort of just like like decoratively basically um, and she's also sort of playing with the fact that they're a natural substance and there's sort of things that if you put them in water again they do expand because they, they do take up the water and they can sort of become more crinkly as they dry out so that's one thing and then she was also um, making sort of long polymers so basically making kelp yarn again using this um, chemical sort of a process where it's it's the, the alginate and, and the kelp and then um, stitching the yarn into fabric so she has like some images of kelp socks um, and also just sort of yarn in different in different forms um, generally I just I really am fascinated by this stuff I think all of these these looking into sort of more sustainable methods is is quite fun and cool and I especially like it when it goes back to sort of information that we know and we have um, 
and then sort of developing it further and seeing it as something that's artistic and interesting as well as potentially ultimately usable um, at the same time. So her name is Ardita Para and we'll put the link to her stuff. I really recommend having a look um, through the website because it's just a beautiful design website that she has. Um, and there's there's different things. So there's also um, projects with cyanotyping, um, sort of recycling and stuff. And it, it's all very much this sort of connected to um, being natural or like sort of being sustainable, but also using chemistry and molecular biology um, in order to sort of achieve this this art science mix, which is one of the things I think we do talk about quite often in the podcast because we love it a lot. Let's talk, talk, talk about bias, 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 So for today's bias, I have a little quiz for you, Tegan, and I want you... Oh dear to just give me a year where you think uh, the events that I'm going to mention um, when they happened and then later oh, no. on we will figure out like if you know anything about the world and then we will, we will publicly oh, shame really you don't. for the yeah, rest of the show. Is, this is going to be awkward. Um, so let's start with the first one, Tegan. And what year was the Gangnam Style? Like the big like craze. The, the, the Psy video? Yeah. Uh, just whatever comes to your mind, what do you think? 2010 or 11 let's 10 or 11 i won't shame you if it's if you say 11 and it's 10 or the other way around. i think it's 10 i think it's 2010 okay um when uh did brexit began so the actual like not the decision but the actual putting it in place the event like the final decision had been made yeah that was early 2020 like january 2020 mm-hmm yeah, I'm just noting that down. Um, when did we get the first picture of the black hole? 1988. <laughs> um, when was it that time when the ship got stuck in the Suez Canal? That was like last year. So 2021. And... Um, the last no I, I have three more but I don't think I will make it, uh, all of them um, when did Kate and William of royal fame when they get that did they get married it must be like 10 years ago or more now so so for me I'm trying to I'm trying to map it to like where I was I think I was still in Australia so I think it's like 12 years ago I'm going to say 12 years ago. That's 2010. 2010 or 2009 even? Like, I think it's it's when I was in Australia still. And um, when did the first iPad come out? Oh, before that, I guess. 2005 or something. Okay. Uh, now I have to, like, also Calculate see... Calculate my stuff. No, no, see the, the, the real results because I had them all, like, hidden <laughs> so that, I, that you can't um, look at them. So, the first iPad came out in 2010... Um, Kate and William got ma married in 2011. Gangnam Style okay. was in 2012. Okay. Um, the first photo of a black hole was in 2019. Um, the ship that got stuck in a Suez Canal was in 2021, and Brexit began in 2020. So, hey, um, hey, that was pretty good. That was pretty good. Yeah, yeah, no, no. And overall, like, there's uh, 
you were very close to them, um, but there was a small trend where you put stuff um, that were a long time ago, you pushed them further back in time. So Gangnam Style was 2012 and you said 2010. And the first iPad came out in 2010, 2005. And Kate and William got married in 2011 and you said 2010. And this is actually a bias that we have or um, a perception problem, a memory (coughs) problem that we have. And it's called the telescoping effect. Um, Events that happened longer than three years ago, we tend to push them... Uh, no, actually, <laughs> I got it the, the wrong way around. So you you don't you have the opposite effect of that. <laughs> usually, when I fail the normal the normalcy. Yeah, measure. usually usually when we have stuff that happens uh, longer than three years ago, we tend to think they happened more recently, and stuff that happened in the last three years, we tend to think that they happened longer ago. So and they sort of. Um, at, at three years' time, like stuff that happened three years ago, is the stuff where you, you are more, um, equally likely to think it's more throw recent. It back or, or throw it forward. Exactly. Um, and that's the telescoping effect. So I, I can tell you why I did I did okay at this, and it's because I'm cheating, because I had very major life moments that happened there. So I can basically be like, did that happen when I was in Australia? So Brexit, I, I know because I literally moved to to britain just as that was happening and the same like all of those things i'm like was where was i so gangnam style i remember dancing to gangnam style with a friend who i had in australia so i left australia at the end of 2012 so like i know that that happened before 20 so like this Mm -hmm. is kind of cheating i think i think i i'm not a good test subject here no no this is i mean this is how we remember things most of the time we put them in our own frame of reference um but often um we try to push it like we take the closer milestones that we have to remember better and these are the ones that are more recently and that's why we push things rather to the more recent uh, event that we remember and that's how you get the telescoping effect where something that happened in 2010 you think it happened in 2012 or 2014 because the the major events that you experience during that time are usually more present than the ones that happened in 20, 2005 or whatever. Yeah. Um, in most cases. I like, how, but for, for, I like but, how I demonstrated how little interest I have in space. I was like, <laughs> I don't know, we've probably seen black holes since I was born. <laughs> I mean, it's, 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 it's a complicated thing also because it's like technically the first photo, but it's also... And it was this like orange donut that went around uh, the news for for a bit? Ah, uh, this yeah, very blurry donut. donut, and I don't know how much of a real photo that is, but it's sort of the first graphic representation we have of a of a black hole. Um, yeah, uh, and this bias has some importance. The telescoping effect. Um, uh, one thing that I think is absolutely not important that's in marketing, where you ask people in surveys uh, when they think they've seen a certain brand the last time, and then they might say, "Oh, I saw this brand in 2020," but actually, the last time they heard about the brand was 2016, and that's important for brand marketers because then they get wrong analysis. But who cares? Okay. Not really important <laughs> for marketing. Um, yeah. But the other pro- uh, part where it can be problematic is in drug surveys, when it comes either to drug abuse or just like taking medication. And you do surveys to figure out how long are people taking certain medications or certain drugs. And they, if they misremember the onset of their um, drug taking, that can have implications for your analysis for figuring out what to do on a medical level with them. Um, so they might, might say that um, they are taking a certain a certain drug for shorter um, than they actually have, for example. And this is where you 
have to sort of use uh, additional safeguards um, when doing these surveys to avoid the telescoping effect. Is that is that three years thing specific for the telescoping effect or is that sort of a, a time that's also because, you know, we have like ability to store things in long term memory. Um, and I'm wondering if there's sort of a thing where on average, most people after a certain amount of time are much less likely to remember things accurately or if, if that's completely different. Oh, I, I don't know. Like um, they... The thing is, we don't really know why we have this telescoping effect. There's like a couple of different explanations, and these explanations have different, yeah, different ideas about why we have this this three year um, limit that we see in the in the data. So I don't really know what the reason is. So what I what, what I said is like the associative model, where we try to remember associate our memory of events in the past with my milestone events that we can easily place on on the timeline but this is just one of many different models there's um that try to explain why we have this this memory effect because memory is just complicated <laughs> for people um so yeah so i can't really answer that but yeah so that's a telescoping effect um a thing to watch out for when you ask people to remember certain dates Ah, so I want to <laughs> talk about something which um, Yoram also found, but then when we fought it out and I won. Um, <laughs> you won in battle, fair and square. <laughs> I won in battle. Actually, um, I won because it's very Australian related and it's fact not just Australian related, but it's related to my side of Australia, West Australia. It's um, Southern Australia is what I read. <laughs> it's at Southern Coast. It's Southwest like <laughs> I don't I like I don't know any of these it's places. It's not even that south. It's Shock Bay. Shock Bay is like pretty far. Anyway, um, <laughs> cool. It's I mean, so I actually found out about this. I saw this on Facebook a few days back when it came out because um, my friends are at the same university and the same. So this is like um, University of, of Western Australia where I did my my undergraduate studies. Um, so this is how I. This is why I'm, I'm claiming this story anyway um <laughs> the story is that we have a new biggest organism in the world i think we've discussed biggest organisms i mean this is biggest plant not biggest organism um the the big fungi might still be, mm -hmm. be winning but i think we've discussed um biggest plants in the world before yoram you quite like that the tree thing don't you yeah i was always team of the the quaking aspen um in the united states i think somewhere um, this clonal reproduction of all of these trees that are of a large stretch all genetically identical. Yeah, this is basically the same thing, um, except it's not a tree. It's seagrass, which is objectively both less cool because it's a grass, not a tree, but also cooler because it's seagrass. Seagrass, like... It's like the dolphin, it like it went onto land, it became a flowering plant and then went back into the water. Like that's objectively <laughs> quite cool, I would say. Um, but really the same thing, they found um, a clone that is just there and everywhere. Um, and it looks like it's just been hanging around for a long time. The size, I think we need to mention the size. So it covers 200 square kilometers. Um, which is 77 square miles for those of you playing in that unit for whatever reason. <laughs> um, the equivalent is also 20,000 rugby fields, which makes it less helpful. That's more obscure <laughs> to me. Or I think maybe what is good is three times the size of Manhattan Island. So it's a lot of seagrass. Um, 
And basically all of these seagrass come from a single um, seed. This seed was actually the formation of a polyploidation uh, event. So it's like two different seagrass species came together, made a seed that made this offspring. <laughs> and that was about 4,500 years ago, they reckoned. Yeah. And it just sort of like nestled down in this place called Shark Bay. That's how you know it's my side of Australia. Um, and just sat there and grew and grew and grew and grew to be three times of Manhattan. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I, yeah, first of all, like it's, it's, it's impressive. Um, I just, I just wonder, I, I always have the problem with these definitions of the biggest organism or the, the biggest plant when they're, they're clones. I wonder if they're all really connected because the pictures that I've seen, you, you saw it was patchy. You saw like isolated patches of the grass. It's clonally the same. It's, it comes, it's a clone of the entire patch. So genetically, it's not different. But um, I don't know if they're connected through their roots, then you could make still the case that it's all the well, same it organism. But if it's just clones, then, then if I just get enough friends and I make tons and tons of cuttings of a Monstera um, and I spread them ar across the world and then they are all clones of one another they're not the same organism um so how close do they have to be together that you can consider them the same organism if they are not physically touching well so i think the thing is um when you're cutting the monstera okay it's kind of similar but like i mean there's some man-made stuff involved but this is like what grass does or what bamboo does it's sending out runners so it has it's it's got this thing where there's basically an umbilical cord this runner where mm -hmm. the the new plant as it were is attached at one stage through this runner to what it's shooting off as so it's this this clonal this asexual reproduction and that means that like it was connected at one point and it but it also was designed to sort of be another entity like it was sent off into the wild yeah. um so i think that's it's kind of it's definitely blurring the lines of definition um but it's not the same as like a leaf i mean i guess it's i mean it's the same as like things bud also and that's basically the same like a little cactus will have a little bud that comes off and that's the same. I mean, yeah, I, I guess like what the makes it the same. banana that we are, are reproducing clonally um, and all of the banana plants are genetically almost identical um, because they are all clonally rep reproduced. Um, yeah, I, I, I know that it's also like it's it's nitpicky um, because, I mean, it's still growing I, in the I'm same assuming, patch. Like, like, it's different. Yeah, I mean, they're, I'm guessing they're not all connected now because for sure some of those like links would have disintegrated. So I'm sure there's some parts that are like much more like independent as it were than... Yeah, yeah, but still, they're also there. And yeah, as, as I said, this is um, asexual reproduction, so the plants are not having sex. Um, they're just making these little clonal, clonal bodies. What I liked about the story is that they wanted to um, genetic, genetically analyze batches of, or like bowls of seagrass that were washed ashore, and they did that over a very long stretch, and they wanted to just map the population of seagrasses on a genetic level, and they yeah. analyzed them. And they were the same, <laughs> like 180 Whoops. kilometers apart. They took these samples and they were still the same in the samples. And that made them wonder, like, what, what's going on here over such a long stretch? And with that sort of kickstart and then investigation to, to see that this giant patch there is actually one plant or like one clonal, like one set of clones that are growing close together. We should actually also mention the the species name. It's Poseidonia, so this Poseidon thing, Australis. It's kind of a logical <laughs> name, I think. <laughs> the Australian Poseidon. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
Um, I have a story about trees that are getting ready to sleep. Um, they uh, found out uh, that trees, they replenished uh, um, the water in their branches sort of towards the, the evening um, and load or during the night and load up the branches with, with water and that makes them droop visibly so they hang down um i think up to 10 or 20 centimeters um the, the the branches droop down and then during the day with transpiration happening again when the sun comes up um they lose the water again and they go back up and they have this movement throughout the day that they do and this in itself i think it's it's kind of interesting but we've seen other plants do that but now they how they found this is is quite interesting they um, used a new method of um laser measuring these uh, these trees so they set up a um, specific laser laser based um distance measuring devices where they could then um, like the ones you're basically using for building homes like the architecture ones yeah i think similar to this and um, with that they could then track individual branches so they could not all of them at the same time but they could pinpoint a couple of branches and then measure these specific branches over um, a period of time without cl like climbing in there and having like very accurate three-dimensional data of the individual branches and with this method they could find that they had they, that you see this like drooping motion in there and this is sort of an initial study where they think that maybe we can from the sort of physical state of the plant from the outside we can um, tell something about the water content of the plant and this can be then interesting for greenhouses when you have such a laser measure measuring device that you can automate you could imagine a greenhouse where um, at certain times they measure with the laser the state of certain leaves or branches of the plants in your greenhouse and then decide whether you turn on the water or not so if they're drooping you, you know that they have enough water and if they need more water to sort of get springy again um, uh, or no like yeah that's where the problem comes in like sometimes they droop when they lack <laughs> when water okay so this is also something which i'm now i mean so sometimes they droop when they lack water and sometimes when they you know but then i'm also i know that there's also a thing called a hypernastic response where plants actually close their leaves mm -hmm. upwards so some plants close down like i mean i think oxalis sort of collapses downwards and we've seen these time lapses on like tiktok and, and instagram when it, it gets sleepy whereas other plants they close their leaves upwards especially when they have prolonged darkness so they sort of fold inwards and now I'm wondering, like, I, sh I should really know what the mechanism is there, but like, are they also folding? Because I mean, sometimes if you put more water, something will become stiffer and maybe they fold because they do have more water as well. Maybe that is still the same mechanism. It's just that in those plants, it becomes stiff inwards, like depending on yeah. the structure of the leaves or is it a completely different I mean, in the end, process it will, and mechanism? I don't know. I think in the end, it will be hydraulics. So water pressure, because that's all plants can do to move really like they they redistribute water pressure um whether this is because they have an influx in water in there or if they have uh like losing water um i i have also no idea but uh it's it's certainly it will be some some movement of water that then tenses it up but i could imagine it like it's some some parts of the stem swell up and that makes it like um become more firm or rigid and stand up and uh, closer, close up the plant. Um, so yeah, I mean, this is like always with these studies. Like they like to say in the end that yeah, this will totally be applicable in greenhouses. We will have to see about that. But it's an interesting idea that we can just like measure, laser, laser scan the plants and then say this one is drooping um, at water or don't at water, depending on the species that you're looking at. 
Um, one of the other things that's making really big news in the last couple of days, I don't know if you saw this as well, Yoram, is that there's a new research coming out of a lab in Israel um, where they've managed to increase the amount of THC and CBD in cannabis. Um, so this is quite important now because obviously we're getting more and more interested in using cannabis as a medicine um, and people are interested in, in making sure we can sort of control better the relative levels of the different drugs. I think like broadly speaking, THC is kind of the, the hallucinogenic one, like the one that makes you high, right? I mean, not hallucinogenic, but like mm-hmm. makes you high and CBD is like the more relaxy one, right? So I think there's a lot of interest in doing this control and we've I mean people have already done this a lot with cultivars there's been obviously quite a lot of work just in the interest of recreational drugs at playing around with these amounts of these components as well as like other different um, secondary metabolites inside the plants Um, but this is sort of now in a scientific um, way they use some sort of viral vectors and I have to say I found this quite frustrating because I found the I think it's a very new study, but I could not find the reference, the original paper anywhere. I had like a <laughs> 10 minutes of searching that I just got angry and gave up. So if anybody sees that, I don't know if it's not out yet. I looked on PubMed and Google Scholar with the, the name of the, the lead author um, and I, I couldn't see it. So I don't know if it's maybe just a bio archive thing, but apparently they've managed to get about 20% increase um, in both of these components in um, cannabis. And from that, I also found out that actually THC and CBD were originally discovered in Israel as well. So in the Wiseman Mm. Institute, which is one of their very um, big, I think publicly funded as well, scientific institutes, it's got a very good reputation in the world for plant science. Um, There was a chemist who basically got given a few pounds of hashish from police. And that chemist, Raphael um, Mekolum, went on to isolate these two main components of marijuana. So that's some of the history. Mm -hmm. And then I was also thinking about this thing of like, so some of the the stories that were reporting um, this paper that I could not find, um, they were talking <laughs> about the fact that, you know, actually, in reality, a lot of people have already claimed that, like, if you go to, like, sort of growers and dealers' websites, people are already like, yeah, my, my strain has 20% more whatever. Um, and keeping in mind, 20% more doesn't mean it's gone from 20 to 40%. It means you've added 20 onto that percentage. So it's like 20 goes to 24. And that was also something that was being discussed on these forums. Like that's, you know, not a hu- as huge an increase as you might think if you're thinking of it in like a hundred percent. But this has been, so they're saying this is different because it's sort of been done scientifically and measured properly as opposed to just people um, claiming it. But then I was also curious about what the changes have been across time. So we we do know that cannabis has become a lot more potent. So the stuff that they were smoking in the 70s as hippies was like quite mild compared to what's around now. And I found a different um, study that was looking at the changes in the cannabis potency from 1995 to 2014. So it's just a 20 year period. Um, in the US and they found that there was um, let me just see the data oh, yeah, so they found that um, the the potency so this was looking at the THC content had gone from 4% total to 12% so it's like tripled which is pretty huge but also at the same time the CBD content had been had fallen so they were selecting you know mainly for this THC and because of that they had also massively switched the ratios of THC to CBD, which is also then going to impact mm-hmm. 
the experience you have. So they yeah. had like been a 14 um, ratio and now it's like 80, 80 times one to the other. So they're like also playing mm-hmm. with ratios. So this is like, I think, I don't know if you know about this, but they, there's sort of a Sinsemila is the, the cultivar which has these. Yeah, Sinsemilia, I think. I only know that from like rap songs and stuff. Um <laughs> Yeah, you can see I'm I'm really going to territory that I'm not super great at. Um, but yeah, um, I don't know. I think it's, it's quite interesting. And it's interesting that now there's a bit more interest from like people for <laughs> like, oh, actually, hey, we shouldn't have just been all like freaked out. We should actually be using these. Yeah, but these I also drugs. find it funny that growers who have all of these unofficial sources and cultural cultures and like as in like plant culture but also like in consuming culture um for all of these like different varieties that now as like the legal system changes in some parts of the world for um uh that's um that they can now be like yeah yeah we know like we have lots and lots of varieties we have some varieties that have more cbd some that have more thc uh we have some that give you like they have all like the, the terminology of like body high and head high and whatnot um so they have all of this but it's not like scientifically documented because it all has been illegal or in the shadows so you don't really have like the same thing that we have for wheat for example like like, mean, uh, like like the grain not the, the plant not that it was a poor example like maize let's say maize where we have like a very documented seed stock that has like official descriptions of what they are yeah and there these are all of the things where like some grower tells you oh yeah this is the crazy stuff um they give it a fancy name and then they say it gives you this 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 kind of high when you smoke it but it's not actually analyzed to the same level as we have for like our other crops well that's the thing i mean so this this study that i said which was showing these increases they were looking at thirty-eight thousand different samples but they were from like they were from the the da they're from like the the drug and enforcement mm-hmm. admin in in the u.s so it's like in its drug form but then you've got to wonder do the scientists have those cultivars like i mean are the scientists using even if they're using the cultivars from only 20 years ago they've got one third of the the compounds that like are currently i mean this is now 1995 1995 to 2022 we've got another 10 years of development on that like yeah I, yeah i wonder if there's now this thing where the science is just also behind i'm not sure how <laughs> yeah good these i mean you gotta hope the communication is good but i don't know yeah yeah i think it will it will def- dra- drastically change when places like colorado in the united states where it's now legal to grow it um they will then sort of bring the the shady seed stocks into the light by being legally allowed to grow them and then make them also available for research um and i think i think through these i mean i also wonder who gets who gets the um I mean, who gets the acknowledgement for that? Because then if, yeah. if people have been developing these cultivars, like usually, you know, we think of companies developing cultivars in the modern times, of course, like often these were like just stolen bioresources, but whatever. But I mean, now again, you've got this thing, if somebody has put a lot of work into developing these or, or lots of like a, a community has and what now a company takes that and de- like, yeah. how how does that work with property and rights and, and monetization, especially? I'm, I'm not sure, I think. Yeah. Um, no, I think it's it's I think it's, we know who's gonna get screwed again, right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, but I think it's it's more complicated than at first glance you might might think if you if you look at all of the like the way we do agriculture and the way we handle crops when it's legal crops and then suddenly we make an Ill- illegal crop legal in some parts of the world. Like 
that brings a lot of problems with it. Um, and I don't mean like problems in the sense we shouldn't do it, but problems in the sense we have to be careful how we approach this. I mean, this is also happening generally with the crops that we are playing around with. So I think we discussed a few episodes, our eggplant episode. You know, there was this uh, this cultivars of eggplant, the brinjal, that were taken from a region. And like that was found out to be basically illegal pilfering because that hadn't been taken with the permission of the people in that region. And that was a resource that belonged to that region. So like, even within the country, they're like, this is not... This yeah. was not done properly, but those are relatively new laws, right? Like it's it's not that the the laws um, shouldn't exist, but it's just like you know they didn't exist twenty years ago. They, they yeah. it's perfectly correct that they do exist, but they weren't. So all this stuff is changing very rapidly as well. Yeah. Um, it's interesting. So I have something where I think you might know what it is because you usually ask me what it is. It's uh, about thicknomorphogenesis. Mm -hmm. um, it's um, response to touch. Yeah. Growth response to touch. And there's been a study in Science Advances um, from Darvish et al. Uh, that figured out a pathway, a molecular pathway that's related, that's specifically regulating thickmomorphogenesis. Um, so the a response to touch. A molecular pathway. Yeah. Um, and not okay. one, but actually two. Um, before we, like when people were studying the the molecular response of touch in plants they would always find like uh, jasmonic acid dependent um pathways and which like is a calcium very, signaling right yeah and this is like very general very broad mm. lots of lots of, uh, lots and lots of things um sort of end up in this pathway it's it's like one of two major pathways the other one i think is salicylic acid pathway the sa pathway and this is the JA pathway. Um, and this is just like one of the major, I imagine, like highways of, of signaling in the plant. Um, so this is certainly not the specific thing that re re, um, relates to touch. And now they did a very in-depth analysis of um, metabolites in, in plants. And they found two um, pathways um, that are uh, related to transcription uh, factors so things that re regulate gene expression and um, they are now specific to touch they could see that when they would knock out these um, signaling pathways specifically the touch response was lost and nothing else and this now opens the door to all kinds of further studies in this touch um, reception in plants because now we have a place where we can start fiddling around and look into it and figure out what's going on um, where before um, we didn't really know where to poke where to knock out individual individuals' genes. What what plant species were they doing this in? Was it Arabidopsis or was it like something fancy oh. like a Venus flytrap? Oh, that's a good question oh, now. Um, oh, it's Arabidopsis. Yeah, they're using Arabidopsis. Yeah, I think um, based on the genetic methods that they used, that would have also been my guess because then they could, um, just there's just more tools available. Yeah, and I think you've also brought studies about like how people were brushing. I think it was one of our earliest stories also on the Plants and Pipettes blog um, yeah. people with like brushes touching the plants and seeing the response and then measuring the and metabolites. And blowing on them and yeah, all of this stuff. Yeah. And so yeah, this is um, a major breakthrough in the understanding of how plants actually understand being touched um, and then reacting to that. Well, speaking of major breakthroughs, um, no, so this is a publication that came out a couple of days ago and I think it's like not super surprising but it's still nice um 
that it's been done. Basically, this is a story about trees, but not the type that grow in the forest, about molecular trees or phylogenetic trees. Um, and this is basically the the structures we use to connect how similar organisms are. So, you know, on a phylogenetic tree, a monkey is closer to a human than either of them are to a fly, than either of those are to um, alfalfa let's say. And this is just a study that was looking at um, the relationship of phylogenies, sort of how we used to do it. So using morphological, so sort of the, the, the physical shape and structures. Um, and this is like how we used to identify species always, especially for plants. It's like, okay, that one's got, you know, a pretty pink flower that's this big and has this many petals. And they compared that with sort of molecular trees, um, which is now how we're doing our species identifications. And I think if, if, if you've been following this at all, you know that this has just caused chaos across the last, you know, 20, 30, whatever years since we've started IDing things um, with genes. Mm-hmm. We've just realized that a lot of the, the organisms that we think are related are not as related as they really are, or other things are actually the same species. They just look a little bit different. Um, even where to call that line of this is a different species versus not is is often very confusing. So, you know, traditionally we have this, this definition that if two organisms would not be able to reproduce in the wild um, and would make like a sterile offspring, they that would make them different species. But, you know, there's all sorts of rules that can be bent here and you know what is the wild anyway um (laughs) especially as humans are changing the world so rapidly so you know a lot of those species barriers would actually be sort of behavioral barriers where this frog calls in a different time of day than another frog but actually they'd be sexually compatible so there's all these like really chaotic stuff um and basically these uh authors these scientists were just trying to compare how the the biogeography, so sort of where we find um, organisms, um, so their distribution, um, and also sort of where they've appeared in the fossil record. So these were two independent data sets. And they've sort of looked at that based on both morphological trees and molecular trees. And probably unsurprisingly, the molecular trees provided um, a much better fit. Um, and like this is mostly problematic because, as as I mentioned, we've been having this chaos coming from having the better tools to actually see what something is, and it just means we have to often rearrange things and like really rename a lot of things as well. So, I I think a lot of people would have worked with species that have had their names shuffled around. I think the the most the most obvious one that springs to mind is um, tomato. Uh, it's Solanum lycopersicum now, but I think uh, f- just a few years ago, a few decades ago, it was called Lycopersicum something else. <laughs> Let me look that up. Solanum lycopersicum. Uh, uh, Lycopersicum esculentum. Escalentum. I don't know. So now I'm looking at the Wikipedia article and they say that it was in Solanum and then in the 1750s, some dude like took it out. Um, But now that would actually split the genus. So you have to put it back in again. Otherwise, Solanum becomes split into two. And that's a no-no when we're doing like Mm. trees. Um, Anyway, there's some example of the chaos. I think there's just so many examples of things being shifted and moved around. Um, yeah. And I guess um, the press release I saw on this um, 
says the study shows that we often need to overturn centuries of scholarly work that classified living things according to how they look. So let the overturning begin. <laughs> Burn the system down. <laughs> yeah, that that's absolutely no problem for us when somebody's like, we would have to overturn it. And like, yes, we're like starting to lift to overturn it. Um, yeah. Yeah, but it's, it's a big problem. Like nature, that's that's... Um, famously hard to put into boxes and in science we constantly try to put it into boxes to label it, to understand it, to to do stuff with it. Um, and as it turns out, yeah, very, very often it just... Does not want. It doesn't fit. It doesn't... Um, you you end up in like edge case. And that's like whenever I talk... Um, like do do talks or something or people ask me about nature like uh is it always like this and like no in nature nothing is always, <laughs> nothing like, is this. always like this yeah um, you will always find a freak somewhere some weird creature that does it completely the opposite way um and so same with species boundaries like whatever definitions you find for species there will be you're wrong quite a bit uh quite a large number of freaks that just don't fit in there and do something else Cat fact. Uh, I have a cat fact that's uh, only in the in the in the title has the word cats in it, and then it deviates very quickly. Um, <laughs> and it, the story is called "Are people swapping their cats and goldfish for praying mantises?" Um, and usually, when you have a question in a headline of a news article, the answer is no. Yeah, obviously, no. no. <laughs> um, Otherwise, it would be people are swapping their cats. <laughs> yeah. Listen, can you imagine a, a barter market where you bring a cat and swap it for a praying <laughs> yes. mantis? Like, is that literally the scenario we're envisaging here? Yeah. And do you swap it in by weight or by number? Like, how does it yeah, work? Yeah, you just get a billion praying mantises, or like one of those really big, terrifying praying mantises, like the the big ass sticker insects. <laughs> yeah. But apparently, um, there has been a global increase in the use of these um, praying mantises as um, insects at home because they can be quite docile to to humans. They kind of look cute. They have very pretty colors. Um, so if you Do look, they up, look cute, like like some of them, they look like Pokemon. To, honestly, um, there <laughs> is like the the orchid mantis, for example. If you look at that, um, that's very pretty. Um, oh, he's a pretty boy. The, the jeweled flower mantis, for example is very pretty and now there um, was a study that was looking at this global market um, and yeah seeing that there has been this increase um, and they were serving like 200 hobbyists um, and, and resellers of these uh, so it's like still very small numbers so they, they're talking about like hundreds and thousands of people um, and that is like there, there's more people having cats in my neighborhood than there's global people having <laughs> mantises. This, sorry, this jeweled mantis is incredible. This it it looks like somebody's graffitied its wings. It looks like somebody's grown like it's got literally like a smiley face, but it looks like it's been a yellow smiley face that looks like it's been done with a spray can. Like it's got a black rim around it, then a white rim, and then like a yellow smiley with two dots. It's really is this see? real? Is this not photoshopped? This is brilliant. Yeah, see, like you're about to pick up a neighborhood cat and bring it to into the pet shop and is exchange it for a praying mantis. Um, I kind of want this, yeah. <laughs> that can't be good. This is like the exotic plants all over again. Like if my instinct yeah. is I want that, that probably means they're now going extinct in the wild. Um yeah. Uh <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's, I mean I, I I think most of them are not sourced from the wild, but they are um actually like 
grown in like in, in, in shops or by by breeders so they're not really taking that many of the um uh, f uh, from the wild but uh this like the the increase in interest in these these um insects can help science by having like a larger quantity of observations of these uh, insects and then pro potentially also like um, rare breeds that are hard to find like hard to pick them in the wild if you just look for like rare insects but if it's praying mantises where like people go out of their way to find like very rare types of them um, for science it could be in an interesting way to get their hands on them and study them and, and analyze them which otherwise would be not feasible without the interest of um, sort of an, a private owner market um, and so the, I think this is the, the conclusion from this study is that science could take advantage of this interest in these praying mantises and um, sort of increase the pool of, uh, of observations that they can draw from to do their studies. Um, I think this is the main the main conclusion from that. Uh, I just I just Sorry. found it through the headline that <clears throat> like who would give up I their cat for praying mantis. I see your notes. Did you write these notes or did you copy them from somewhere? Many can be safely manipulated and cuddled as they look at you with big, cute kitty eyes. This is from I, the article. Like this, is, <laughs> this is from the Science Daily Post. That no, I don't read. believe it. <laughs> no, I, I just copy and pasted that over to uh, half the species names. But yeah, that's in the paragraph. <laughs> I um, mean, they are they are beautiful, but I don't think they're cuddly. I think cuddly is a very different thing, to be honest. Yeah, I mean, cuddly means that you can put your face into something without smashing it to pieces. And um, also, I, I can see that their hands have those little barbs on them, so like it's very, it's gonna be very scratchy, like mildly exfoliating, I'll believe, but cuddly, no. Yeah, and also like they they're always putting out their arms like this, and it sort of looks cute, but I think this is an aggression pose. So it's constantly like either defending itself or trying to attack you, and even though it's too small to do anything. <laughs> Fairness, I don't know. I don't, I don't want a pet that's just like constantly signaling to me that like I will I will eat you. Just give me a chance and I will eat you. Um, so yeah, I don't know. Not for me, but I have to say they are very pretty insects and um, yeah, they're quite plant-like as well. So I think this is kind of very yeah. uncat themed this week, Yoram, but actually more plant themed. So it had yeah. two mentions of cats in the article, in the headline, and one in the description you just read. So yeah, it's better I... better than other weeks that have done. <laughs> I think on this we might be ending the show. That is all from us today. If you want to read more about plants, we've got a backlog of articles that you can find on www.plantsandpipettes.com. If you want to talk to us, Yoram. You can reach me on Twitter. That's at Plants Pipettes. I am sometimes on Instagram, very rarely on Facebook. It's at Plants and Pipettes. Um, and as always, our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. And goodbye. Until next week. Bye.